16 and in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. On June 22, 1997, two men jumped out of a perfectly good airplane. I don't understand it. The airplane was flying at an altitude of 12,000 feet. One of the men was a 42-year-old parachute instructor named Michael Costello. The other man was a 21-year-old skydiver named Gareth Griffith. Costello was a professional. He was a veteran of thousands of jumps. Gareth was a beginner, and on this particular trip, he was the responsibility of Michael Costello. Trust me, skydiving is not on my bucket list. If it's a perfectly good airplane, I plan to stay in it. But if I ever do go skydiving, I hope I have an instructor as devoted and as dedicated as Michael Costello. When the two men jumped from the plane and the novice pulled his ripcord, his parachute refused to open. Gareth Griffith found himself plummeting towards the earth from 12,000 feet in a total freefall. His prospects for survival looked grim. That's before Costello came to the rescue. In an amazing act of courage and sacrifice, Michael Costello refused to open his own chute, and he stayed by the side of his pupil as they both fell to the earth. At the very last second, the instructor grabbed Griffith and rolled over so that he hit the ground first. The beginner landed on top of him. Obviously, Costello died on impact, but he was able to cushion Griffith's fall. Gareth survived. In fact, he suffered a fractured spine, but avoided both death and permanent paralysis. And here's the moral of the story. When Michael Costello is your friend, you got a real friend. And likewise, if you have Jesus Christ as your friend, you also have someone who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Jesus joined the human race in its free fall. And on a hill called Calvary, he took the brunt of our hit in order to save the lives of those who would follow him. Never has there been such sacrificial heroism. After Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, his body was taken from Washington to his home in Illinois. As the funeral procession passed through the town of Albany, New York, people lined the streets to see the casket of their fallen leader. One black woman, she stood on the curb, and she lifted her son just as high as she could possibly raise him. Above the heads of the crowds, she told her little boy, Take a long look, honey. He died for you. And this evening, I want to take you to Calvary's cross. And I want to show you Jesus, hanging, all bloodied and bleeding. I want you to see him in his agony and marvel at his attitude. And I want you to listen to his pronouncements. And I want to say to you, what that former slave said to her son, take a long look, honey. 
for he died for you. It reminds me of the mother and daughter who were on their way to the zoo. It was Easter week. And as they drove past church lawn after church lawn, the little girl started counting up the number of the crosses. Finally, she asked, she said, Mom, how many times did Jesus have to die? Her mother assured her, oh, sweetheart, only once. Then why are there so many crosses? The mom replied, to help us remember how much Jesus loved us, he died on the cross in our place. The little girl was appalled. She was up in arms, taken back. She shouted, Mom, how could we ever forget something like that? Indeed, how could we ever forget the cross of Christ? And yet we can, and we do. After the cross, why would we ever doubt God's love for us? And yet, have you? Have you doubted that love this week? After the cross, how can we question His goodness and His grace and His mercy towards us? In light of the cross, how can we ever go to bed lonely and think that no one cares? Hey, take a long look, honey, for He died for you. This evening, I want to start with a statement that Jesus uttered from the cross. He spoke these words toward the end of his gruesome ordeal. According to Mark's gospel, the crucifixion was an all-day affair, quite frankly. At about 9 a.m., the nails were driven into his hands and into his feet. The cross hoisted into its post hole. Around noon, the sky went black, and for three hours, the world quaked. In darkness. Jesus died shortly after 3 p.m. And it was just after this second dawn of the day, right before he died, he made this utterance. What Jesus says here in John chapter 19 isn't a long and a detailed statement. There's nothing really cryptic or mysterious about it. Initially, it doesn't even appear particularly profound. In fact, at first sound, it appears to be more like a man's grunt than a carefully crafted communication. But in John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus cried from the cross through a parched throat, in a dry mouth, in a dehydrated body. He said, I thirst. And we say, no big deal. He was just thirsty. Under similar circumstances, we would have been thirsty too. But tonight, I want to suggest to you that this guttural grunt was really a monumental proclamation. It marked a turning point in the work of Jesus on that rugged cross. You see, verse 29 tells us how the Roman executioners responded to Jesus' thirst. We're told now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. And they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Hyssop was a long branch with a leafy little uh, blossom on the end. It was used to mop his lips with a fluid. But recall, this was not the first time while on the cross that Jesus was offered something to moisten his tongue. You remember back in Mark chapter 15, verse 23, we're told that just before the post was dropped into the hole, the cross put in its place, 
They gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. At that time, myrrh was a narcotic. It was the ancient equivalent of morphine. It numbed the victim and helped him tolerate the searing pain of his crucifixion. For Jesus to forego the elixir was like a man scheduled for open-heart surgery, turning down the appropriate anesthesia. And yet on the cross, at first, Jesus rejected all pain relief. Our Lord had work to do, and He needed control of all His faculties. Only at the end of His ordeal did He take the sour wine, which was minus the myrrh, to moisten His lips so He could utter His final words. According to our text, verse 28 Jesus sought this relief for himself. He acknowledged his own need only after all things had been accomplished and the Scriptures fulfilled. It was then that Jesus said, I thirst. In reality, this seeming grunt points out the extremes to which Jesus went to confront our sin and to bear the full brunt of our punishment. Jesus suffered in our place on the cross, both physically and emotionally and even spiritually. He paid our penalty in full. Despite the fact his throat was dry, his lips were cracked, Jesus waited until the work was finished before he concerned himself with his own needs. Jesus endured the crucifixion and bore it all because it was necessary for him to do so for you and I to be saved. Even today, with Hollywood's various depictions of the crucifixion, it's still hard for us to really imagine what an actual one was really like. Today, crosses are made of polished gold or silver. They're fashioned into fine jewelry. But for an ancient Jew, the cross represented the most hideous form of torture and execution the world has ever devised. Josephus, the Jewish historian, who had seen firsthand his own share of Roman crucifixions, he referred to them as the most wretched of deaths. Roman orator Cicero called the cross a cruel and disgusting penalty. One Roman jurist, Julius Paulus, he ranked crucifixion the worst form of execution, ahead of even burning and beheading and death by wild beasts. Even members of the early church were repulsed by the cross. Did you know the cross was banned from depiction in the arts for the first four centuries of church history? Not until the Roman Emperor Constantine had abolished the cross as a form of execution was it transformed into an emblem for the church. Author C.S. Lewis, he once observed, the crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one had died off. If you were standing before a live crucifixion, you would have shivered in horror. You would have turned your head. It would have turned your stomach. For weeks afterwards, you would have had nightmares. The only mention that Jesus makes of his physical status on the cross is this simple utterance that we've read earlier, I thirst. 
But Psalm 22 provides a prophetic account of what he actually experienced there on the cross. The psalmist cries out these gut-wrenching words in verses 14 and 15. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. These verses are not for the squeamish. The body of Jesus was racked with a fever. He was dehydrated. His flesh made brittle through exhaustion. Jesus compares himself to a broken piece of pottery. His mouth is dry. His lips are bleeding and parched. It's so ironic. The one who promised us all, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink, now suffers from a lack of fluids. Jesus thirsts physically so he can quench our spiritual thirst. All he tastes is dust so that we can taste the sweet mercies of God. Psalm 22 elaborates even further. In verse 17, Jesus says, They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. The body of Jesus is now stretched out on the splintered wood. You can count his ribs. He's suspended from the frame. Lacerated wounds now support his weight. His temperature rises. Seven-inch iron spikes protrude into his hands and into his feet. There's a medical doctor and a historian. His name is Truman Davis. He describes the pain that was associated with crucifixion. Follow along as on the screen as I read it to you. Davis writes, The cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his soldiers against the, shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wound. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action. The cross is lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each. Leaving the knees flexed, the victim is crucified. As he slowly sags down, his weight is held up by the nails in his wrists. Excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms and explodes in the brain. As he pushes himself upward to take a breath, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of the feet, as the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air is drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself to get even a small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside, spasmodically he is able to push himself upward to exhale and breathe in life-giving oxygen. Hours of limitless pain, 
cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from a lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids reach a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small clumps of air. He can feel the chill of death keep creeping through his tissues. Finally, he can allow his body to die. Why such an awful death? Why crucifixion? Why not the lethal injection of some poison, some drug, or maybe an electric chair, something more humane? A means that was more quick and painless? Surely the Son of God deserves to die with dignity. Why does it have to be so bloody and so brutal? For Jesus to die in our place, it was necessary for Him to bear what we deserved. His punishment shows the severity and the depth of our rebellion. You see, our problem is that we take sin so lightly. We gloss over it. Or we wink at the very attitudes that break God's heart. The cross sober us, sobers us. Our sin cost God His only Son. You see, the truth of the matter is not that man has simply sidestepped God's will or that we've strayed from the straight and narrow. No, mankind's rebellion is the equivalent of a moral and spiritual freefall from 12,000 feet. Unless God intervenes, the human race will splatter on the sidewalk. Imagine the force of the impact when a body slams the earth from 12,000 feet. And yet, this is just a fraction of the hit that Jesus took for you and for me. There were actually two ways that a crucified man died. The first was by suffocation. This was hastened by the Romans. They would break the victim's legs with a club so he could no longer push himself up to breathe. You remember, though, when the soldiers came to check on Jesus, they left his bones intact, for he was already dead. Not one of Messiah's bones would be broken, a fulfillment of Scripture. The second means of death for the crucified victim was cardiac arrest. During a crucifixion, the victim's blood flowed into their lower extremities. That meant that their pulse rate would double. Their blood pressure would literally drop in half. The heart was working overtime to pump the syrupy blood. Eventually, the heart muscle would overwork and literally explode in the chest cavity. This is why when the spear was thrust in Jesus' side, out gushed blood and water. Physicians say that the only time blood breaks down into water and plasma is when the heart ruptures. Literally, Jesus died of a broken heart. And his heart still breaks over those who stubbornly resist his love. 
If you've been resisting his love of late, I pray that tonight you'll give in, that you'll open your heart to him. In his body, Jesus bore the full brunt of our sin, and yet the consequences of our sin were not just physical. Sin also damages us emotionally and spiritually. In fact, the essence of death is separation. See, when a person dies physically, their spirit is separated from their body. But the worst type of death is spiritual death, where the spirit of man is separated from God. From the beginning, sin produced this kind of death, this spiritual death. And for us to be reunited with the Father, His only Son had to experience this separation in our stead. By far, the severest, most severest pain that Jesus experienced on the cross was the spiritual pain caused by the separation that occurred between He and His Father. Author Tim Keller writes, On the cross, the body of Jesus was being destroyed in the worst possible way, but that was a flea bite compared to what was happening to his soul. Keller goes on to make the observation, the longer, deeper, and more intimate the relationship, the more torturous is any separation. We feel this in our own lives, don't we? It's painful when friends break up and become enemies or have misunderstandings. It's especially painful when a long-standing marriage goes sour. But imagine the pain that occurred when Jesus cried from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. The phrase was Aramaic. It was the language of the common people. It meant, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one who had been there that day would have ever forgotten the dramatic moment when Jesus uttered this cry. For three hours, a solar eclipse had shrouded the land. From noon until three in the afternoon, the hot Middle Eastern sun, usually at its peak brightness, refused to shine. It was midnight at midday. It was as if heaven had stopped smiling. And all the earth was left to tremble in fear and in darkness. Earlier in John chapter 8, in verse 29, Jesus had said, He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. But now, suddenly, Jesus feels the Father's rejection, the separation. He has enjoyed perfect harmony with the Father since the beginning of time. Now suddenly, he feels the pain of isolation. Here is the most mysterious yet the most monumental moment in the history of humanity. When Jesus uttered the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We hear the Savior shriek. Suddenly, all the sin of all mankind is thrust upon his sacrificial shoulders. The Lamb has received His load. Jesus is the spotless, unblemished Lamb of God. Morally, His heart is as tender as a baby's soft, sensitive skin. He's flawless and He is innocent. It would have been a shock to His system to bear a, a single speck of sin. But imagine the piercing fright, the staggering horror of absorbing the sin of the whole world all at once. 
For the first time, Jesus feels the weight of sin, the sin of the rapist, the serial killer, the child molester, the secret gossip, the sin of the Nazis and the ISIS and the slave traders and of all mankind, of your sin and of my sin. It was suddenly thrust on his innocent shoulders. 1 Corinthians 5 Verse 21 declares declares this stunning truth. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was God and never ever ceased being God. He had lived forever with the Father in warm, unbroken fellowship. From the beginning of time, nothing had interrupted their holy harmony. And yet for a moment, on the cross, the Son of God became the orphan child. In a way no human being can comprehend, God became estranged from God. The Son was separated from the Father so that you and I could be united with God forever. It was in the spring of 1946 in Los Alamos, New Mexico, At the time, Los Alamos was the U.S. testing center for the development of the atomic bomb. And it was there that a young scientist named Louis Slotin was conducting a dangerous, yet somewhat routine experiment. The purpose of his procedure was to measure the uranium-235 that was required for a chain reaction. Slotin would push together two hemispheres of uranium And just as the mass grew to the point of self-sustainment, or what's called the critical mass, he would then pry them apart with a screwdriver, halting the reaction. That's what usually happened. But on this day, Slotin's experiment went haywire. As he tried to pry apart the uranium, his screwdriver slipped. And suddenly the room was ablaze with a bluish haze. And yet rather than duck to protect himself, Louis Slotin cared more about the seven other people in the room that day. He grabbed the uranium and he pulled it apart with his bare hands, exposing himself to the lethal radiation. Slotin's bravery saved the lives of his colleagues. Yet nine days later, Louis Slotin died a hideously painful death. And what Louis Slotin did for those workers In a sense, Jesus did for all of humanity. Rather than duck to protect himself, he exposed himself to the full blaze of sin's harmful radiation. He bore the full brunt of sin's critical mass. And he suffered an agonizing death in the process. And yet in his act of bravery, Jesus halted sin's chain reaction On the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin. There was work to do first. Before Jesus concerned himself with his own thirst. In the Old Testament, the sheep were sacrificed for their shepherd. But on the cross of Jesus, the shepherd was sacrificed for his own sheep. They say the secret service agents responsible for the president's personal safety are folks who would be willing to jump in front of a bullet if necessary to save the president's life. Well, on the cross of Christ, the president of the universe, 
took a bullet for his people. And that's why I have enrolled personally in his service forever. John chapter 19, verse 28 tells us, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Finally, Jesus was free to concern himself with his own thirst because he had done what was necessary to quench our spiritual thirst. In bearing the full brunt of sin, Jesus paid its penalties to the nth degree. Notice the very next phrase in verse 30. Now with a moistened tongue, Jesus says, It is finished. Literally it reads, Tetelestai, or paid in full. According to the other Gospels, now with the help of the sour wine, Jesus is able to manage one more statement. His last words were these, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. No one took Jesus' life. He gave it voluntarily. Now that the work had been finished, now that the price had been paid, now that all that needed to be done had been done, Jesus could release his spirit into the Father's hands, assured that his sacrifice had been accepted. The work Jesus accomplished on the cross was monumental. It was colossal. He built a bridge from God to man, from heaven to earth. Jesus made a way for man to stop his free fall, to be saved, and to return to the Father who loved him dearly. On the cross, Jesus didn't just forgive our sin, But in doing so, he did all that needed to be done for us to experience and now possess all of God's goodness and truth. Recently I read where a suspension bridge has now been built connecting two of the islands in Japan. The Akashi Bridge is 3,911 meters in length. That's over two miles, a suspension bridge over two miles. It's the world's longest suspension bridge but it's still tiny compared to the bridge that Jesus built. It was constructed with a piece of wood, probably no longer than 12, maybe 15 feet. But what happened on that cross formed a bridge from heaven to earth, from time to eternity, from God to man. Imagine this bridge from, from, uh, from here on earth. You and I, tiny human beings groping in our darkness, we now have a bridge to the God who created us. A bridge from death to life, from dark to light, from pain to peace, from hate to love, from loneliness to joy. It wasn't until the bridge was built that Jesus was finally able to acknowledge his own thirst and ask for a simple drink. There was work he had to do. And now, good friends, that work has been done. In the early morning hours of April the 26th, 
1865, the train carrying the body of Abraham Lincoln rolled into Albany, New York. And that former slave knew this might be the last opportunity her son would have to pay his respects to the man who had done so much to gain his freedom. And so she hoisted him up as high as she could, and she said to the boy, Take a long look, honey, for he died for you. And this is what I hope that I've been able to do tonight. I hope I've gotten you a little closer to the events that occurred on that old rugged cross. Please, take a long look, for Jesus died for you.